Hello everybody and welcome to another Motorsport Magazine podcast. This time we are coming from the Black Rock Drivers Club at the 2012 Goodwood Festival of Speed. We are surrounded by racing drivers and motorcyclists, so stay tuned because during the next hour or so we'll be talking to the, as many of them as possible. And we start, as we should, with our editor, Damien Smith, who is talking to Tom Christensen. First guest, what a first guest to have. Tom Christensen, Le Mans legend. Welcome, Tom. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. What, so tell us first what you're driving uh, this weekend. Ah, uh, the great privilege. I drive the, the Lotus uh, T98, um, 1986. Senna drove this chassis, particularly chassis it won twice. I believe it was in uh, Jerez and in, uh, I think, in uh, America, Detroit. Detroit. I think he won, yeah. Yeah, and uh, it's the one where he narrowly beat at uh, Mansell and in, uh, in Jerez, and it has quite a lot of pole positions as well yeah. that year. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Awesome yeah. car to be driving. I mean, a, a, Senna, a Senna Lotus. Um, how much horsepower are you running today? Um, let's say it's not in qualifying trim, but it's uh, it's a it, it, it's a lot, and uh, to, 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 to feel it, it's it's um, it's really of the of the era when I was a, a, a kid in karting, dreaming about going into things like that. But that was uh, and following that era where it, you say the engines were out of control, and that's a really a fantastic era to drive or to, to drive on a, on a day like this. Um, let's say in, instead of a few years later where the aerodynamics were out of control. So the engine is, um, is mega. There's some turbo uh, delay, but when it kicks in, you better be, uh, be prepared. That was always said in qualifying trim to have been probably the most powerful engine ever seen in Formula One, uh, even more than the BMW. The, uh, I think in 86, uh, I seem to remember Peter War saying they were they were sort of scraping 1500 horsepower, you know, with the boost off the clock and the wastegate off and all the rest of it. Yeah, it must so. have been an amazing, amazing time where you really had to. Nowadays, it's it's downsizing. It's about corner speeds. It's about uh, things like getting the car in a perfect shape and perfect balance, so you are able to keep the maximum momentum. Back then, it was uh, more I can say, yeah, oh, about really being really good on, on braking, and then get the car squared out, and then yeah, and then yeah. being uh, put it in the direction, yeah. and then just go yeah. feed it. And uh, of course, it's tuned down. There's no down that I I I I feel that going up the hill now, but. Um, I have the. It's a privilege to have felt a bit what Ayrton did when uh, when he went for these mega laps he did uh, in that particular year. Yeah, sure. Well, talking about the, the throttle lag, is it is is it more than you expected? Not really, not really. It's it's uh, actually you feel it very easily on the revs. When you get to the revs about nine three nine five, then it's really it, it really kicks in. At that point, you are not looking at the revs anymore. You're looking at where you are, where you're going. Yeah. So Tom, while you're here, we, we've got to ask you about Le Mans just a couple of weeks ago. Um, really t tough race, very close race. Um, how do you feel about it now? A couple of weeks on from uh, from that second place. I really think that we won second. I mean, Alan Dindo, myself, we, we did a, a really strong race. We were all prepared. We had driven, like the, the pre-test, Alan had new tires and got very good feeling with the car. During the qualifying at Le Mans, I had uh, new tires, Dindo as well, but with a, with a lot of fuel. So we were very, uh, we all felt very good going into the race. Unfortunately,
actually early on we had an issue with um, a lot of rubber pickup building up on the right rear uh, in in the suspension, which compromised the, um, um, that area, and, and we we had to take the car back into the garage really to fix it. And um, and that was already after the fourth stint. So then we dropped back, not a lap, but by more than two minutes. So uh, we were very determined and I think everything really worked for us during the night. We did well and in the morning uh, I took the lead after the, 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 the three stints. And since then we were out of sync with the number one car and had a fantastic fight, but we looked very good. We had the advantage uh, going up around lunchtime. Um, and then Alan had an, uh, the, the issue with the Ferrari. You know, that, that's the thing. With the unexperienced uh, driver in a Ferrari gave this situation. And um, it's, really, uh, it's really tough. But I still believe getting the car back and, uh, from Alan and the mechanics did a, did a great job. So we still won second. But yeah, we would really love to have uh, done this one because I think Audi showed yeah we have a strong competitor with Toyota very good uh, preparation from them and they did fantastic until they retired from misunderstandings as well but we were racing and and I can see the four Audis we were racing uh, to the end it, it could have been and unfortunately uh, it, it, it wasn't but I still believe we did a very strong race and um, we can we can be proud of um, of that. It was great credit to Audi to let you guys still go at it because it would have been a pretty dull race after the Toyotas were out if you if it had been team orders. But you know, you were just allow, allowed to go for it. It was great. Yeah, I mean, we always are. But I mean, that just the race as it panned out, it it, it showed that we were able to race, and you could see the the the, the drivers were on the limit. You saw uh, Fasla being being off. Uh, you saw uh, Trelloet spinning into the pit lane. So you see, everything was really really on, and I think that uh, is some situations which which uh, people listening is uh, or watching they appreciate that. Tom, after last year's accident, well, thinking about Rockefeller's accident last year, uh, and then Anthony Davidson's this year, they were actually remarkably similar, weren't they? The, you know what what led up to them. Yeah. How, how many? Is this? I, I just wondered what if professional drivers, top drivers at Le Mans, are sort of starting to think. Maybe you know there are some guys in that race who perhaps should not be, and and. I know it's always been that way at Le Mans, but it's just having had two huge accidents in two years. I um, in similar circumstances. I, um, I try to uh, to to push in that direction. We should all be better. We can all uh, be better. But when you approach in these two incidents, you have to look at the driver has not felt or seen the the car behind because he doesn't act like that. And it in a in a in a professional driver will stay out wide and he will maybe lose a few meters in the braking zone, but he will have the corner clear. And at the end of the day he will he will he will lose less in the next 200 meters than he does what, with what now happened or ev what even happened worse obviously. But it's the thing is that you should expect a driver to see you when he is traveling in a GT car on a long straight. And uh, there I, I see the issue. Um, of course, you, you have to be, be careful with taking corners, but a kink like this is not a corner. They can easily go or breathe it flat offline. But you need the trust there, and it's always happening. It is a driver who doesn't have the... Um, 
the experience or um, the, the will or the control. It's a combination of that. So we need to have this uh, this better. I have pushed for it. I have asked why we cannot have something like more experienced drivers are getting around this of GT cars, and uh, maybe they have to to pass a sort of. Um, it doesn't necessarily needs to be lap time. It also needs to be driving time in the car. It's a combination of both because being slow is something, but it's also important to be aware. And it's the awareness we need we need to race uh, because that will uh, help j racing in generally. It's no problem when you come up to a professional, the Ferrari or the the Corvette. We 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 know that, and that is uh, that works. But. It's this one odd situation, once in a while there's a car with the, with the green numbers. And we know that, but sometimes in the green numbers it's even a pro driver in, but there's also two yeah, others, which yeah, yeah, needs, sure. uh, needs more experience. But um, we are aggressive, and that's a combination of that. Tom, um, <laughs> we're aware you've got an appointment with that uh, Senna Lotus on the hill, so we probably should let you go. And uh, there's your, your teammates also hanging on to, uh, to join us as well. So. Uh, um, for now, Tom, thank you very much for joining us. No, always a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. We continue with the Le Mans 2012 theme, and uh, with us is Andre Lotterer. Thank you very much, Andre, for joining us on the Motorsport Podcast. Fantastic. Um, we just heard uh, Tom talking about the potential dangers of some of the slower drivers. Do you, do you have a view on what, what might be done about that? Uh, you know, in a way, that's... Um, that's what Le Mans is and what it's always been and you know we want to see a lot of cars on the, on the grid and it's uh, and this is the compromise we have to live with uh, but of course uh, you know since last year this in this year we saw some big accidents caused with uh, with the drivers uh, that are a bit less experienced and of course we don't like to see that because these are things that are avoidable uh, by just simply looking a little bit more in the mirror and understanding a bit more what's going on around you. Um, you know, the things we could do is just to have more intense meetings for, for them to, that they're a bit more aware about it and maybe also impose a check, some some level, some like certain level, you know, that not just anybody can come and race. So, um, yeah, maybe something in that direction would be not bad. Andre, fantastic race this year. Uh, uh, you know, thrilling battle between you and the the number two Audi, uh, almost right to the end. Um, what was it like to be in the middle of all that? I mean, th through the night and into the into Sunday morning, um, your teammate Marcel had some problems. Um, did you think the race was lost at that point? Uh, it was intense, you know, and Le Mans is never over until it's over. So, um, I mean, you saw that like, Alan had the accident just before the end, and it just proved that uh, we were really fighting hard till till the last moment. The race started flat out already, and then uh, we had a nice fight with the Toyotas. They took the lead. I mean, it's quite impressive. They came in really strong. Unfortunately, they retired. I think it would have been a really nice battle. And then uh, after they retired, it was a really strong battle between uh, the number two car and us. And we had some lead and I thought, okay, we just have to keep it going like that. It shouldn't be too much of a problem. But then Marcel had a little spin in the Porsche curves and 
uh, he touched a little bit so as a precaution he came in immediately and um, I wasn't ready at all I was eating upstairs and I just hear on the radio I touch I touch and then I I ran down put my helmet on run to the car nobody in the car the car was there waiting just jump in and I go and I come out the pit and Alan was right behind me I just push push hard and I managed to get a little gap and enough to to be able to split us from this uh, with the safety cars and then we had some some air again um, until Marcel again unlucky <laughs> for him this year but that time we really couldn't do anything about it there was a Corvette in Mulsan and uh, he had to avoid it so we lost some time with changing the parts and then uh, Ben did some some strong stints as well so but yeah he was gonna really go down to the end because we were battling uh, we were a bit upset sometimes we were leading they were leading does it surprise you that uh, Dr. Ulrich allows you to race just as if, if it were, you were racing a, a, you know, cars from a different team? Mm. I mean, we all love it, but it, in a way it's sort of surprising. I, th I think he really cares um, about us and he knows that if he would freeze the position early, we would not be happy because he saw that we both have the potential to, to win and... Uh, he knows our nature and uh, if you do that to us it's I think it's the worst thing you can do because you know like once they're in front once the others are uh, uh, behind so it wouldn't have been fair but on the other side it's quite brave from him to it's, it's to put uh, cars like that at risk but uh, I think he does it because he trusts us and uh, he knows that um, you know we, we we have enough common sense and that we uh, he cannot take the race away from us and it would have been also a shame for everybody watching the race you know can you imagine you would have frozen the position 10 hours to go or something you know just to bring the cars home it would have not been fair and um, but I have to say thanks to him and, and it's, it's, it's fantastic that he trusts us that much thank you very much Andre thank you and congratulations again great race thank you very much Right, well we move away from uh, Audi just for a little while and uh, I should really tell you at this point actually that as we're in the drivers club at the Festival of Speed there is an awful lot going on here. I never realised there were so many racing drivers. They can't all be racing drivers. Anyway, it's pretty noisy as you can probably hear. Marino Franchiti, welcome, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. Um, it was very interesting doing the experiments with you beforehand of finding out which microphone's very scientific of us. I, I thought it might be a bit technical for you actually, but we seem to have solved it anyway. Yeah, well, you, you see, with the Nissan Delta wing, it was like a rolling science experiment, so it's given me some good training. Yes, we, 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 I should have mentioned that, of course, the, the Nissan Delta wing at Le Mans 2012, it's caused a fantastic stir, hasn't it? I mean, everyone's talking about it. I've never seen anything like this uh, in my, my motorsport career, even being here at the Festival of Speed. I've been talking about it for two days now, and I must have signed 400 photos. Fans just keep coming with pictures of it. They want to talk about it, and like me, they, they wish it was here. So pretty disappointed that, that we couldn't have it here uh, for the Festival of Speed, because the fans definitely want to see it. Obviously, you were so unlucky not to drive in the race, but just give us some idea from your experience in practice what it was like to drive the thing and, and, and follow other cars. A couple of very interesting things. Obviously, I was the main development driver of the, the, the Delta Wing, so I was doing all the testing from the first test all the way through. At Le Mans, a couple of things that was 
over the crown on the mill sign, normally you've got to be so gentle as you cross over it because the car, as you get to the crown, just darts over the other side. The delta wing was so stable down there, so easy, just cross over it well, no problems. At Le Mans, you're always looking for a toe, even though you're running very limited downforce. You're always looking to get in the toe. You just pick up a couple of kilometres an hour, a little bit of fuel economy. The delta wing so efficient on its own that getting a toe, all that was happening was our heads were getting ripped off by the dirty air, but the car actually was not accelerating at all. It's so efficient on its own that putting it into a toe doesn't do much. But the Porsche cars were fantastic. The Aero is what has always been the most impressive thing of the, the Delta Wing for me, the grip that it has, considering it has no wings. The underfloor is very good. And it was just hauling the mail through the Porsche cars. Huge amount of fun. I'm just trying to remember exactly the wording on the Dan Gurney's Christmas card last, last year. Was, uh, the car was, was a drawing of the car on the front of it. And the caption was something like, yes, but will it turn? And I mean, the first time you drove it, uh, you, you can see why, you know, everybody thought that. Well, well, will it turn? But the track as narrow as that and, you know, and everything else. But it, apparently it, it turns extremely well. I'll never forget that. I, I thought, right, it's going to work, but how's it going to feel? Am I going to be able to access the, the performance? And I rolled out of the garage and there was actually a chicane I had to go around to get on the track. So I thought, well, we're going to find out pretty quick. And it just changed direction so well. I was like, well, this is good. And there was a corner on the track that was third gear. And Ben said, in the simulations, if everything's right, low fuel, new tires, it might be flat. Third lap out, I was flat through there, pinned to the floor, pulling like 3.9 G. And he's came in, he's giving me the, well, what are you doing? You know, take it easy. It's just a shakedown. I said, it just feels right, Ben. So... Uh, yeah, and then he's explaining to me afterwards we think we know what's going to happen we're not really sure but as a driver you have to have a lack of imagination anyway so I just was getting on with it Marino um, yeah, I was sorry forgive me I was just going to say this. it staggers me that you, you, in three laps you were already that confident in how much turn in the car had it just cars feel right or they don't within a lap and it just <laughs> I just felt things out and there was a lot of runoff anyway, so I thought, ah, well, we got to give this a go. But it just felt like that's what it wanted to do. And it, it, very quickly, that first run, I already blew through the time that they thought the car was capable of there. Of course, we had a lot of ups and downs with the car. We had a lot of gearbox issues which held us back right up until quite close to Le Mans. But this wasn't reheating the same old thing. This was completely rein reinvention, complete innovation. And for me as a driver, to get to experience what my heroes experienced in the 60s was the last time something like this happened. To work with Dan Gurney, to, to, it's something that no one of my generation or the generation before that got to do. So I, I feel very fortunate to have had that experience. I think we should say too at this point that Dan Gurney will be at the Goodwood Revival this year in September. And uh, in fact... The meeting is largely sort of devoted to Dan. Uh, there'll be a special tribute to him every day with lots and lots of, of the cars he drove. And uh, I know he's looking forward to it. And I tell you, a lot of people have been talking to us at Goodwood about, you know, how exciting this is. And, and as you rightly point out, you know, he's, he is a bit of a quiet man, Nigel, isn't he? You know, uh, he, when you look at what he has contributed to motor racing and what he himself achieved, 
he's quite he's quite a quiet man for all of that, isn't he? It, it, I, I no, it's true. I mean, he, well, he, I think but there was a whole generation of American racing drivers like that. I think you know, I mean, Phil Hill was very similar. Uh, I think if you look at the span of of Gurney's career and I mean, just what he's done as a driver and as a constructor and everything else, I mean, it, it is fantastic. And he's he's 81 years old now, and I mean, when I talked to him at the, about the Delta Wing, I mean, he just he was so excited about it, like he's half his age, you know. You read my mind there. He come, he comes alive. He just, he, he's like he's half, he's half his age. And to get out of the car after your first run, to debrief with Dan Gurney, to then debrief after the event down at the workshop, hang out at AAR, and have Remy, who made the, the um, the bubble on the GT42, make the dead pedal in our car. Same man, 91 years old, working 40 hours a week at the, uh, All American Racers, to then have to send your report to Dan Gurney afterwards. It's just a dream come true. He also gave me a champagne shaking uh, masterclass, which was pretty cool. So I know how to do it next time I get the chance, hopefully. Well, thank you very much indeed, Mar thank you. Marina. Thank yeah, you. Um, you, got, you got a proper legend coming up next. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, got a, you got a beeper on that for bad language. <laughs> the, the great, the great thing is, we now know Marino Franchitti is a test pilot. So uh, space cadet, yeah, space cadet. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. On we go then. And uh, the beauty of being in the Black Rock Drivers Club is that uh, every time we finish with one guest, another one appears. And this time it's um, well. What can we say about John McGuinness? <laughs> oh, I know what we can say. Yes, yes. He has no no brain and balls. He's just said so himself, and that's because, of course, he is a legendary motorcyclist John thank you very much for joining us yeah pleasure yeah the big balls by the way <laughs> but uh, yeah no it's great to be here you know I've done uh, the Goodwood Festival speed many a times and uh, it's always fun you know uh, we get to ride our bike up the hill it's, uh, it's a bit greasy and a little bit different to the TT track and uh, once you get to the top you want to go again I've, I must have done it 10-12 times and I've no idea still no idea where I'm going up the hill but uh, no it's great to be here and uh, you know I really enjoy my weekend and uh, we get to drink some champagne tonight and maybe hit the dance floor as well tonight perfect I've always wondered uh, when you guys go up on, on those fantastic bikes I and mean, bearing in mind what you do for a living you know the real thing is um, how much of a release is it just to do a wheelie wave to the crowd because normally you know it must be a hundred and ten percent concentration every yard of every every mile yeah for sure at the isle of man you know when you when you're racing around there it's 226 miles long you're on the bike for an hour and 45 minutes we have two pit stops and uh, you know each each lap we do has 240 corners on it so uh, yeah we have to have uh, ultimate concentration and uh, you know, our maximum speed is, uh, it's knocking on the door 200 miles an hour, just depending on wind direction and things, but 200 mile an hour and, and, and down to 20 mile an hour on the hairpins. And, you know, the average lap record, uh, well, the average speed, and I hold the lap record, is takes us 17 minutes and 12 seconds to get round, and it's 131.578 mile an hour. So, yeah, so <laughs> I suppose our little uh, sort of, 45 second run up the hills uh, a bit tame really but uh, it's quite nerve-wracking there's a lot of people here and it can easily go wrong at Goodwood and uh, you know we're trying to do a wheelie and you know I'm not really a stunt rider but we're trying to do a wheelie on a burnout or something but it could go wrong and end up in the bales looking like a fool but uh, it's great you know like I say it's uh, no pressure just have a little ride up the hill have a wave at the fans and the kids and the families and then get to the top and uh, yeah have a chat chat with everybody at the top it's good it's laid back and fun hearing your description of a lap of the TT I think we understand the no brain in big balls now <laughs> <don't we? laughs> John I was going to 
asked 20 or so years ago, just a bit less, uh, Joey Dunlop did a, did a lap. I mean, you must have seen it, mm. you know, with, with the, the, the camera. Has that ever been proposed more recently for, for you to do? Because, I mean, that, that's mind-blowing, but, I mean, yeah, th- no, I mean, nothing like the speed you're doing now. Yeah, I think that was 1983, so it was, uh, maybe yeah. 30 years ago. So. Sorry, sorry, but excuse I, me. Yes, it yeah, was 83. It was one uh, sort of, a, for sure, a video that gave me a lot of inspiration, really. As a kid, I watched it over and over and over and over again to learn the circuit. And, uh, like, now you can get a PlayStation, you can get all sorts of bits and pieces with the Isle of Man TT track on it. But we, we actually do have high-definition cameras on our bike, and... Uh, it's weird that the, the the cameras are that sharp now. It actually slows it down, and it's not as like when Joey did it. It was a lot more violent and things. But and that was un- Joey did. I remember Joey did. He did a hundred and it was about 115 mile an hour average back then, 30 years ago. And we're doing 130 plus now. It looks much faster, but at the time it was uh, it was a great video to watch. It was called it was V for Victory. It was called. That's it was right. The, that's right. The, yeah. The video. No, I, I, I watched got it. it. I've played it. I watched it so times. many times. Yeah. You know, yeah. I'm uh, not surprised. Yeah. You're a great mate of Mark Webber's, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, I got pally with Mark over the last few years. With uh, He came to the Isle of Man TT to, to watch in 2008, and uh, he wanted to meet a couple of riders, and uh, he came into our awning, and, uh, you know, and I didn't really know Mark. I just knew that, uh, you know, what he does and what he achieves on the F1 cars, so we had a good old chat, and he was picking my brains about the course and the bikes and how bikes work, and you could tell... You know, the man was a complete enthusiast and, you know, he knew his stuff and he was with his dad. His dad always worked to go to the TT and uh, it, they were blown away by it. You know, they thought it was a fantastic thing to see and, uh, they, you know, he pushes the word out there and gives us all a mention. And he came this year as well and, uh, you know, I, I spoke to him the, the day before. I was really nervous about it and, he, you know, he sent me a real kind message about how to deal with it. And, uh, you know, he's an ins- inspiring sort of character as well. You know, he's a very professional man and uh, trains hard and, uh, you know, he wants to win and, and when he came to watch, it was fantastic for to win in in front of Mark, in front of my family, in front of my sponsors, and everything. So it was, uh, yeah. but he really, really enjoyed it, you know. And uh, you know, over the last few years, we've just talked about a few things. He's a big Speedway fan as well. He loves the Speedway, and uh, I'm a big Speedway fan. And uh, you know, he's a petrolhead at the end of the day, and uh, he can relate to what he's talking about. And uh, he's, he's good, good fun to have around you. John, the world, your racing world, is very different to the the, the Grand Prix world that we see on the, on the TV every other week. What's your opinion of MotoGP from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it, I suppose it's the ultimate thing. You know, it's uh, it's something I've actually tried. You know, I was uh, in 1998, 99, and 2000. I was the British wildcard in the Donington in the Grand Prix, but uh, you know, I rode a Honda V-twin two-stroke bike, and uh, you know. T- to be brutally honest with you, I probably wasn't fast enough, you know, I tried my best and uh, I just couldn't quite run the pace of those guys and, you know, when you stood from the outside looking in, it looks easy to do, you know, but uh, they, they are really special. I mean, obviously, Valentino Rossi, uh, Jorge Lorenzo, Pedroza, these guys, they are gods, you know, they are unbelievable on what they do on a bike, you know, the, the speeds they're getting around and, uh, you know, I, have my hat, I tip my hat to them, you know, they're the best in, best in the world at the moment, you know, I think... They try and switch from class to class to World Superbike and back to back to MotoGP, but the the, the MotoGP boys just stand out and uh, it's a good series. I'd like to see a few more bikes in there. They're trying harder a bit with this CRT, this claiming rules team, but uh, they're sort of way off the pace of the the prototype MotoGP bikes. So it'd be nice just if we can do something where all the bikes are on a bit more of a level level playing field and give some more riders a bit more of a chance. But uh, to go and see it, especially, it's, it's Formula One of, of, of the two-wheel side, so yeah, it's pretty special to see. Thank you, John. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Pleasure. Fantastic. John McGuinness.
Okay, on we go. And thanks to our uh, web editor, Ed Foster, who's very patiently standing next to us here. The supply of drivers is absolutely endless. Well done, Ed, I say. And Brian Redman, good morning. How are you? Well, I'm all right, really, considering I got, I got up too late after a rather late night and left the hotel, which is about 10 miles away, at 10 minutes to 9, and I was due on the hill at 10 minutes past 10, and it was all a bit tight. <laughs> tell us, tell us, Brian, um, what you're driving this weekend, please. Well, I'm driving the famous Dan Gurney Eagle Formula One car with the Westlake engine, 1967 spa Francorchamps Belgian Grand Prix winner. And... Uh, Unfortunately, I think in shipping, coming from America, it suffered a derangement of the of the wheels because uh, one wheel is pointing out more than the other, and the steering wheel isn't straight, and so it actually isn't uh, isn't really great to drive. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a shame, isn't it? And and uh, I was saying to Nigel yesterday, actually, it is my favourite ever racing car of all time. It's so beautiful, isn't it? It is, absolutely. And, you know, I didn't know till today that the tub, you know, the main part of the monocoque is magnesium. Because they said to me, be very careful when you're getting out of it, when you, where you put your hands, or the magnesium will crack. And all the suspension and the exhaust system is all titanium. I mean, it's an incredible piece of engineering. It's fantastic. Oh. And in fact, I mean, it must have been an extraordinarily expensive Formula One car. It must have been you incredible. Know, four, 45 years ago, yes. you know, compared with the other GP cars of the time, I mean, yes. the way it was made. It was well, it's got D. Gurney on the back of the gearbox cover. And I thought, huh, oh. that's funny. It looks a bit like a Hewland. So I said to Scott George, the curator for the Collier Museum, I said, why well, is it a Dan Gurney? Uh, well, it is a DG 300, <laughs> which is the model number for the yeah, Hewlett yeah, Gearbox, yeah. Dan yeah. Gurney 300. <laughs> yeah. So you can't really get any idea of, of what the car's like. I mean, no, it, I mean, the sounds, road's been it slippery. It's beautiful. It's, uh, yes. That V12 always did sound beautiful. Yes, it's great. The engine sounds fantastic. But in the first corner yesterday, and that's the first run, and it's the first time I've ever seen the car, never mind driven it. And, you know, I come into the first corner, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, boy, you were really trying at that first corner. And I said, yes, I was trying not to crash it. <laughs> <laughs> so what, is that the, what else are you driving this week? Nothing else. Just, just um, the Eagle. Just the car, just the Eagle. Right, and, uh, right. and really, it's, it's kind of a tremendously busy weekend, isn't it, all in all? Like last night, there was the dinner at Lord March's house, at Goodwood House, and uh, I literally left here at 6.30 in the evening, fought with all the traffic, got back to the hotel at 7.30, and at 20 to 7, I was back on the road coming back to Goodwood House. <laughs> Brian, we know you're still very much involved in the, the scene over in America. And we were talking just before we came on air about that, that scene over there. There's nothing quite like Goodwood in the States. No. And, of course, you know, the Bobby Rahal tried to start a series which would emulate uh, Goodwood two years ago. And it didn't work. I mean, it, it is so difficult. And, and it's really impossible because where else? Is there a Goodwood House? And where else is there a Lord March with all his incredible personal attention to detail? No, there isn't anywhere. I mean, you could have a really great event at uh, Road Atlanta 
where there's a lake, Lake Lanier. You could have wooden boats on the lake. There's an airport there. You could have the old planes flying in and out, but otherwise there isn't anything. No. Yeah. Uh, there's a big event in Road America coming up, isn't there, that you're, you're attending? Yes, that's in uh, two weeks. Next weekend I'm at uh, Le Mans driving an Alpha T33. And then on Monday, I fly back to, uh, to London, Gatwick, stay the night, and fly to America on Tuesday. And we stay Tuesday night at the Hilton Garden Inn in Orlando. And on Tuesday morning, our daughter Charlotte comes with our granddaughter, Victoria. And Victoria and I fly off to Road America, and we have a party at David Hobbs's Honda dealership on Wednesday. And uh, we're featuring the Lola, and, and especially the T70. And as of today, we have 25 T70s. 70s entered for the event. That's amazing. It's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We get 450 cars, 450 race cars, and we get 25 to 30,000 spectators. So it's a great event. Brian, always great to see you. Thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we'll see you again soon. I'm great sure. pleasure. Thank you very much. I love your stockings and your outfit. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> yeah, but don't forget, in our day, they were suspender belts and suspenders, you know. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for uh, yeah, but, but at the top of the stockings, they had, in Braille, far enough. <laughs> right, well, thank you, Brian Redman. And um, for clarification, uh, he was referring to Rebecca, who is our sound engineer today. And, um, well, anyway, I think Brian gave you a clue as to how Rebecca is dressed today, and we'll leave it at that. Meanwhile, we have Emerson Fittipaldi, double world champion. This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Emerson. Um, well, welcome, welcome. Saw you out in the Lotus today. It gives me butterflies just to see it, actually, because you know it's wow. All that time, all that time ago. Well, it's, it's a lot of history today with 60 years of Team Lotus. Uh, Colin Chapman, uh, I saw Hazel Chapman, uh, Clive Chapman, all the Chapman family here. And um, I'm, I'm very proud to be a, a small history of this big history of Team Lotus. You know, I, I, I'm very proud to participate on, on, the, on the Lotus history with so many great champions, you know, since Jim Clark, Graham Hill, York, and I mean, you name it. Uh, Mario Andretti has fantastic names and uh, to be part of these great champions and uh, Colin was a genius to me. He was one of the best car designs ever. Uh, he was always ahead. He always uh, innovation, trying to found the limit over the limit, the, the extreme limit that uh, not many people could found. And uh, it was a great relationship with Colin Peter War, who was another great man in racing that I enjoy many years working together. Um. Nobody will ever forget the fact that uh, you were winning a Grand Prix for Lotus less than two years after you first sat in a Lotus Formula One car. What on earth did that feel like at the time? That was, that was spectacular, wasn't it? Well, you know, it happened so fast and uh, um, I was in the right place with the right people on the right team and uh, it just happened very fast. I only, I only drove the, the Lotus 49 three Grand Prix and then my fourth Grand Prix, first time with the, the Lotus 72, uh, I won the Watkins Glen. I mean, it was, was a lucky win, but we were there at the end of the race. We were running strong at the end of the race. 
uh, was a tremendous pressure coming from the tragic weekend in, in Monza and then being number one in Watkins Glen at the US Grand Prix. I was the third driver in Monza and uh, you know Colin, Colin put a lot of pressure on me, the team put a lot of pressure on me and I, I finished and finished well the race. And in fact, I mean, to, uh, all the way through your career, right at the end of it, you you still reckon the 72 was your favourite car, don't you? Still, yes. Uh, For uh, all the cars, of I all drove, the cars you yes. ever drove, yeah. I, I I could talk to the car. The car would talk to me. We understand each other, <laughs> and was uh, was incredible relationship. When when you feel the car is extension of your body and the and you are part of the car. Lot 72 was very consistent. When you got right, end of 1971, we got working, and then was a fantastic car, 72, 73. Yeah, actually, it wasn't that good in 71, was it? Thinking about it, I mean, you, you had one or two good results, but it wasn't, it wasn't really a front runner in 71, was it? The 71, we had a huge problem with the slick tires when yeah. it was the first yeah. year of the slicks, improved the grip, and then the suspension was not taking out that load and through the year Colin decided to make a much stronger suspension and then the car was reacting to the change but we, we lost three quarters of the season with the, the slick tires with more grip we couldn't make the car work. Emerson if we thought you were busy then boy I reckon you're busier now because I've just been told you've got to go yes. anyway you how are you driving again Fantastic. I'm driving again I'm, I'll be driving the low to 72 I, dr I just drove the 49 and uh, you know it's so much history and when you go back to this car you know the seat position the pedals uh, the steering wheel is exactly like was even the smell of the car is the same I mean that's a fantastic memory okay Emerson thank you so very much and I gotta say you're a thank great you. ambassador for our thank sport you thank you fantastic thank you. Emerson Fittipaldi and uh, you should know everybody by the way that uh, in next month's motorsport magazine i will be talking to emerson fittipaldi in a, a major feature about uh, his thoughts uh, uh, looking back on his career and and also his thoughts about racing today so that really is something to look forward to thank Good. you i'm looking forward to it. thank you straight on then and um, mr miracle man mr foster has produced none other than jackie eeks hello jackie how are you hi fantastic to have you with us and thank you for your time um, it's difficult to know where to start with you actually so I think perhaps what do you <coughs> mean well uh, what I mean is we could <laughs> sit here all day talking about your career but we haven't got all day and nor have you so can we start with you know what beautiful cars you're driving here at Goodwood this weekend well uh, I'm driving a, a Porsche 917 uh, a car is coming from the, the museum and uh, usually when I come to Goodwood Lord March always organize great cars for me to drive and uh, he always tries his best to bring me into cars or I used in the past so were very successful cars like the Ferrari 312 or, or, or other type of Porsches and um, for us, basically, for all the drivers who are in the uh, Goodwood Festival, most of the time it's opportunities to drive cars you have driven in the past, but also sometimes other very famous cars. 
For example, the, the Porsche 917, it's very attractive to me because I never drove one. Because at the time I was in the opposition with the Ferrari 512. So it's really attractive. But more than that, of course, it's all about the soul of the Goodwood Festival, which is shared by um, everyone. Sure, absolutely. And, and the theme of this year's Festival of Speed is Young Guns. And of course, a lot of people actually forget you were a very young gun when you first had success. I mean, I was looking at a picture of you yesterday. Uh, things got very good for you, very young, didn't they, Jackie? Well, uh, yes, we were young guns because actually uh, it's uh, slightly different, but um, uh, I have um, evocated with Nigel the start and we mentioned, um, I mentioned many times and uh, as Nigel knows the story, um, we mentioned Ken Tyrrell and um, I just say that without Ken Tyrrell probably I would never became um, a professional driver and in those days, yes of course racing was more dangerous to, than today, but that's not the final aspect. The final aspect is that in life you have always to find somebody who believes in you, who trusts in you and who takes you by the hand and makes you grow. Um, when we speak about Cantrell, definitely uh, he is the man of my life. There is a number of them, but the key is really Cantrell and Nora. I have to add, add Nora because it was a team effort, always. Nora was part of the group. Was, she was almost the coach of every driver who went through uh, Ken's team and it was a beautiful team, really. Given how close you were, Jackie, to, to Ken, um, was there ever a chance for you driving in, in Formula One for Ken at all? Well, I just say that um, Ken Tyrrell saw me um, at, uh, in a race at Budapest, a street course with Cortina Lotus for Alan Mann. He decided that I could be um, a driver, uh, but unfortunately, unfortunately I was driving tanks in the Belgium army at the time, so I could not answer positively. The only, the best thing I can say about Ken, a year later when I finished the army, he offered me to try single-seaters, and I just mentioned two. He really trusted in me because before the season started I had already damaged a number of cars. That means not even racing. And I think today it's things are not acceptable anymore. Uh, but he really trusts that I could do it. And my first experience in single-seater, amazingly, it's Goodwood. In 19, uh, 19, winter 1965. Yeah where I, I spun at the chicane a number of times and finally I crushed on the, uh, at the king at the end of the straight. Oh, well, you have to accept your mistakes, huh? You can't, not everything is beautiful and it's, you can't hide facts and the facts were that I was maybe fast but rather unpredictable. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I remember Eamon telling me about um, the Nürburgring in 67, the German Grand Prix, when you were driving the Ken's Formula 2 car, and Chris was behind you in the Ferrari, 
and, and saying, finding it very, very difficult to keep up with you. But he, but he said he was actually quite sort of frightened for you. He said every time he came around the corner, he was, he was hoping you would still be there because he, he just couldn't get over your sort of raw, uh, well, just your raw speed. I mean, were you, well, were you just too brave at that stage for your own good? Well, um, I think the advantage of being young, you have no fear and there is no mountain that you cannot climb. I have just to uh, add that the advantage I had on everybody that before going to the Nürburgring in Formula 2, I have done the Nürburgring two times at the 86 hours. So I had a I had a mileage, I don't know what the mileage exactly, but I believe I had at least 300 laps on the ring and I think nobody had that, that vision on the, on the Nürburgring. Also I have to add that driving a good Formula 2 at the time was much easier than driving a Formula 1 at the, at the Nürburgring. 17 jumps with a Formula 2 is definitely much easier than doing it, doing it with a uh, with a Formula 1 car. Um, yes, it's all about racing. You always fear, especially in those days where really Grand Prix were dangerous. But uh, I'm still here, so maybe I wasn't quick <coughs> enough. <laughs> Well, I mean, Jackie Stewart is still here as well, isn't he? Yes. And well. actually, I just wanted to ask you one thing. I asked Jackie recently, your, your entire career in, form, in, in motor racing, which was the most difficult corner, the most daunting corner, and he immediately said, oh, Master King. Without well, a doubt. Uh, would, would, you, would you agree with that or, or not? When you speak about uh, Spa-Francorchamps, yeah. definitely all the corners are really high-speed corner, and the Masters King for Jackie's bad memories. Yeah, of course. Because he almost, had fatal, yeah. he almost had a fatal accident there, and it's only because he had a good guardian uh, angel that it saved his, his life. But it's true to say that um, in 70, 72, I believe, um, I did in uh, practice the highest speed on a road course with a Ferrari 312. Yes, yeah. And that speed was, by memory, 263 kilometer per hour average on a road course. Right, right. And nothing has been done before. Yeah. Now I go to the point, because you mentioned Master. At the exit of the Master King, there was a 307 kilometer per hour, because I checked the gears, Jesus. the refs, and all the corner at the time were yeah. about 270, 280 to reach the average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Considering you have La Source, so it's very slow. Yeah. You have Le Redillon, yeah. Eau Rouge, yeah. Yeah. with not like today, flat no, out. No, it no. was really a corner. Yeah. Uh, it was fast. And the thing about the Master Kink as well was it was a downhill approach. And it was blind as well. That was the other True. thing, wasn't it? And you but look at it now and you think, they were taking this flat, almost flat. That, how is that possible? Because it's a left-hander and a right-hander. Well, that you have to... It's, it's, that's it's, the, option. It's that's two the difficulty about the option, is to resist to the temptation to lift, yeah. even slowly. Because sometimes yeah. drivers say, I'm flat out. Yeah. But between flat out and just giving 
a little lift on the pedal yeah. it makes a hell of a difference yeah yeah a lot of people have admiration for us at the time but the other day i drove an auto union from 19 uh, the c type from 1938 uh, yeah. the c type at francorchamps was running around 320 kilometer per hour in 1938 narrow wheels very narrow almost bicycle wheels uh, suspension limited no uh, brake assistance no steering assistant no belt no helmet no nothing full of uh, ethanol these drivers at the time really deserve a big 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 respect because when you have driven the c-type you know what you're talking about and then you just try to put that into 1938 compared to the modern times where you're cruising with safe car what these driver like uh, rosenmeyer this caracciola this took did before the war it's so imp it's so unbelievably impressive and that makes me think that at the revival next September. I think uh, Audi and Mercedes will bring a number of silver arrows. We hope to go to a number of eight, if they're all running at th that moment, plus few cars of the era, Bugattis and everything. And I believe that it's going to be an incredible grid that nobody has shown before. And I think that's going to be attractive. Of course, it's not going to be a race, but it's going to be a demo, but you, you will get the sound of uh, the 16th cylinder, the 12th cylinder, and it's going to be uh, amazing. I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, you know, that's going to be uh, something not to miss, I, I think. I, uh, the, you know, people will look back on it, I think, in years to come and say, you know, were you there? Did you see it? Yeah. It's going to be unique for sure. Only the grid already is going to be fantastic. I mean, the picture is going to be very impressive. Fine. Um, just lastly, Jackie, can I ask you, y yesterday I was watching the Ferrari 312 warming up alongside the, the 2011 car in the assembly area. And I wondered, I wondered if you thought that driving then was actually easier in some ways than driving now bearing in mind the amount of technology that these guys are dealing with or whether you think it was the opposite it's it's a bit easier now do you have a view on that well i have many views on that um, or era pre-war after war 70s uh, very often it's called piece of bravery because cars uh, were not very strong, safety on race courses were very uh, limited, but that's the limit. I think cars were uh, simple in a way to adjust and easy to drive. I think modern racing is very, very complicated. Um, these drivers who drive this modern Formula One car today are really, they are not only talented by the, their driving skill, but also you have to have the possibility to, to be concentrated on the track, but at the same time you have to be able permanent, permanently to modify either uh, the quantity of fuel or just this. You have eight, uh, roughly eight buttons on the steering and you do that when you already concentrate. And I think it's 
frankly, it's very difficult. These cars, there, physically, it's hard, but they have all the assistance, it's easy to shift, you do it with the fingers, okay. But the pressure is so high because you have to be able to do many things at the same time. So I think only a very limited number of drivers can do it, and that includes really the, the full grid. Modern racing, it's really difficult in my opinion. That's going to be my answer. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jackie X. Thank you for joining us today. Fantastic. Thank you. Right, well, we're nearly at the very end, sadly, of our uh, Motorsport Magazine podcast here at the Black Rock Drivers Club at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And I must say, it's been absolutely fantastic. So thank you, Ed Foster, very much for bringing us all our guests. And um, we close the show with Karen Chandok, and who I don't think needs a huge amount of introduction, but, of course, uh, Formula One uh, with Lotus. And... Uh, a very, very, very natural broadcaster, if I may say so. Sort of duck-to-water stuff, isn't it? Um, how are you feeling, you know, now looking back, and I guess you're looking forward, but how are you feeling about the whole Formula One thing now? Well, um, uh, you know, I don't think it's yet time to be looking back. Um, as you rightly said, I'll, I'd, I'd love to be back in Formula One and, and racing there, but... I think the business is very different to how it was um, a few years ago. Um, you know, the, the teams today, the the way they need to look at drivers for commercial backing and things like that makes it a bit difficult uh, sometimes for drivers. So we'll see. I mean, I, I'm I'm starting to get into sports car racing a bit more now. I mean, uh, I'm enjoying it, especially Le Mans two weeks ago was an amazing experience. You know, you. It's one of those boxes that I knew I always had to tick in my career. Uh, I didn't think it'll happen so early, but um, yeah, along with Monaco, Indianapolis, Bathurst, um, Macau, you know, Monza, Silverstone, Spa. You know, there's some circuits you have to do in your career, I think, to make it complete. And uh, to finish sixth at Le Mans, I mean, we had four Audis in front of us, so to be second in the privateers, I was very happy with that for my first attempt. So. Yeah, it's uh, life is interesting at the moment. And it was with a you know a team new to Le Mans. You had two um, experienced yeah. teammates in, in David Brabham and Peter Dumbreck. What was it like um, being with those guys? Well, they've got 23, or they had 23 Le Mans between them before last weekend, and neither of them could find scrutineering on the way to. <laughs> so <laughs> they still needed me to look at the map to find where, where it was in the town. Uh, but uh, yeah, obviously they've both done a lot, and I, I was, I mean, I was very happy. The team seemed quite pleased with the job I did. I was um, just as quick, if not quick, a bit quicker in the race. So, um, but there's so much to learn from those guys. Obviously, you know, Brabs has been around. It's really funny. I, t I took a picture of the Silkat Jag. Um, that I'm driving here at Goodwood and sent it to him. I didn't realize he actually raced, <laughs> raced one of those cars back in the day. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's been great. I mean, I think we, it's a good balance of... Um, I think I'm still coming from a Formula One mentality where we're quite selfish and we're quite... You know, you want things done for you rather than... You, you forget that everything has to be done by committee in with three drivers. So, uh, I still have a, a little bit of F1 mentality. Um, I'm shouting and screaming a lot more. Um, but I think we, we bring about a good balance between the three of us. And what did you actually think of the, the circuit itself, Le Mans? Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, again, it, it's an old school circuit. Um, I think I'm a little bit like Nigel. Uh, I like the old school circuits where there's a little bit of danger in it. Um, I'm not a big fan of big tarmac runoffs and, you know, I think circuits should have grass and gravel and walls and, you know, that makes it a challenge. And you want to see drivers punished for mistakes, even if it's me, you know, I think. 
uh, and Le Mans an old school circuit. You, you, you know, it's one of those places. Um, it reminded me a lot of Monza when you arrive. You know, you feel the history. You you look at the walls and the you know the pit buildings and you you just it's got character. It's got soul and. You know, I've, uh, I'm not a big fan of going to places like Abu Dhabi and Bahrain and stuff. I think it's, facilities are great for the teams and, yeah, the, you know, you've got air conditioning and all that. But it, it's not the same, is it? It's just not the same. No, it's absolutely not the same. <laughs> no, 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 no. Karun, I just wanted to ask you, how, what, being in a sports car and having two teammates, um, I always wonder about people, with, as you say, with a Formula One mentality, suddenly having to get used to the fact that they also have responsibility to you know it's yeah. it's not just you um and i i wondered how 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 easy or otherwise it was to 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 make that leap. it's very tricky because as it starts it starts with it starts with even just sitting in the car because the seat is not made for you you know you have to share the seat with other, and i'm the shortest one so for example i can't reach the heel rest so i'm you know my legs sort of just hanging there when you're doing a quadruple stint at Le Mans without a sort of rest for your for your legs it can be quite hard work I'm on my tippy toes <laughs> you know to reach the pedals so um, but, you know it's just it's just part of the challenge I think and I mean the bigger challenge is from an engineering point of view because I'm used to you jump out of the car you interact with the engineer and say right I want this 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 and this done to make me go quicker and all of a sudden nobody moves because you have to talk to the other two guys as well so um, that's a bit tricky um, but I think I think we're quite fortunate that we all seem to want the same things from the car we all have similar I mean I'm uh, I think the only thing is I can deal with the car move a bit looser on the rear maybe than, some, than the other two um, but apart from that we we generally wanted the same things, which is fortunate for the team. And we've got to ask you about that Jag you've been driving today, the Group C car. I mean, you know, you famously have a, an understanding and a, an appreciation of history. I mean, what a great sports car to drive. What's, what's it been like? Oh, just uh, amazing, you know. To, you know, first of all, to imagine, imagine that down the Mulsanne Strait um, in the middle of the night is just mad. Uh, it's got so much power compared to what we have today. You know, I would say if we if we went to a, an airfield did a straight line drag, that car leave my HPD Honda standing. Um, you know, it's got uh, the the torque. It's a seven and a half liter engine, normally aspirated, but it's got so much torque. It's unbelievable. Um, but it's very difficult to get a feel through the corners because there's no temperature here. You know, we haven't got blankets, and it's quite a short run. So unless you get temperature, it's hard to feel through the corners. Um, so yeah, it was a bit scarier than when I drove that Williams. I came here with 2010. It was warmer in 2010, and I drove the 82 Williams. And that I could start pushing, you know, because the temperature would come quite quickly, and, and it was a hotter day. Uh, so this was a little bit scarier, but still. I mean, I was in second gear, wheel spinning all the way up the straight, <laughs> um, past uh, the crowd up here. So uh, brilliant, really good. Karen, thank you very, very much. I must say, it really is it's always a pleasure to see you because you have so much enthusiasm and, and passion for, for the sport in general and, and for events like this. So thank you very much. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. I mean, uh, I'd love to come back next year. And I've told Jonathan Williams, one day I will drive that Williams FW15C that's parked down size. That's, uh, that'll be my dream. So hopefully I'll come back again for that.
Right, well, sadly, that's all we have time for. We could have gone on all afternoon and probably all night, actually. But uh, many thanks to Black Rock for letting us into their uh, exclusive drivers' club at the Goodwood Festival of Speed. And thanks also to our very own Ed Foster, who brought us our guest today. And uh, thanks, too, to Rebecca, who's been our sound engineer today. Quite a demanding job, actually, because, as you can probably tell, it's pretty noisy in here. Anyway, I very much hope you've enjoyed it. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.